from verse number 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. That's verse 20. I think that's going to last about six months. Now, I, I enjoy the luxury of taking my time. I did not have that luxury this last week. And yes, I did make it through all of Colossians and all of Philippians at this incredible speed. But we had to do it. 19 sessions, 19 sermons. Um, it, it was fun to do. It was a lot of fun to do. But that's a lot of speaking. There, there was one moment on the second day, 15 minutes left to go in the message, and something got a hold of my voice. And uh, I just had to stop because it was... Uh, it was choking me and all the rest, and I thought, oh, no, I'm only on, like, session six, and there's 19 in all. And um, thankfully, that passed very, very quickly, and I was able just to keep on going. That's kind of like the way it was this last week, just kind of keep on going. We, we felt that in every single department, but you folks were back here praying for us, and I thank you very, very much for that. Uh, that was a blessing that I enjoy and have enjoyed here at this church for the last eight years, the prayers of our people. It's kind of fascinating to me on one hand to see how the Lord has answered our prayers over just this last year, all the incredible things that we've experienced as a church body, and to see the Lord's answers to our prayers. And, and I stay, still say every time I see Renita, that's, that's an answer to prayer, isn't it? Um, all the other things that we have prayed about, and the Lord has answered and answered and answered and answered. And we are really, really blessed people from His hand. It's an amazing thing. Um, but now I've got a section on prayer here. And it's kind of like teaching people who already know what this is about, what this is about. And I think if we just call it our refresher course, maybe, for some of you, uh, for others it might prove to be rather challenging because the call to prayer is vital in the Christian life. If we're going to talk about what is living faith, you cannot do it apart from this topic because if you're not one who prays, I don't know how you trust. Because that's what prayer is all about. It really is an issue of trust. And so we're going to start working here into chapter number 5 of James, starting in verse 13 and moving on as we talk about a faith that trusts Him. Now, there are four things I've taught you already in this passage that is essential in trusting The first is to be patient. And the second was to be patient. And the third was to strengthen your heart. And the fourth, don't complain. You know when it's 15 degrees below zero? That was our first morning there. I thought, oh, 15 below. But see, after that, seven degrees felt really nice. That was, that was a change, but wow, was that cold. That was cold. Okay, James 5. I'm going to read from 13 all the way through the end of the chapter. You follow along. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, do you see that phrase? The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. The sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Did you see anything in that paragraph that interests you? Some, maybe some sentences that you say, boy, I can't wait for the pastor to tell me what that's all about. There are some in there, aren't there? But probably you noticed Almost every verse talked about prayer. If it didn't, then it talked about an example of prayer or the results of prayer. But prayer is certainly the theme of the last half. Now that is not separate from the chapter. The chapter is living faith and what it means to depend on Him. And that's our key all the way through. And prayer reflects the measure by which we trust Him. Remember, we trust Him to the measure we know Him. Prayer is a measure to which we trust Him. And we're going to learn some things about ourselves, I think, as we go into this part of the study. It's a very, very important section for us to look at. Remember, our calling is to depend upon God. As a Christian, living in a world like ours, We are supposed to be a light, right? What do you use light for? To see. That sounds simple enough. If you are the light, people need to see what it is that you believe. That's the dependence issue. That we live what we believe. That we live it in such a way. I know what it does for ourselves. (laughs) We need it. But it does a great deal for those who watch us, too. We had examples of Job. We've had, we're going to see examples of prophets. We're going to see examples of Elijah. But you, too, are an example. People learn what is faith by watching you, too. And so that is an essential thing for us to study as we realize that is our calling to depend upon God. We are to produce works in that because He's the only one that could do it through us. We are to have self-control in that. And He's the only one that produces that in us too. As we walk with Him, we start to reflect His characteristics. As the Spirit fills us and works with us, we also have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all those wonderful things. That's important as well. And that translates to every single part of our life, too. And now we're in this section here 
of reliance upon God. Remember last time we were together when we started talking about prayer, and that was right toward the end of verse number 12, I started to aim this way with you. He was talking about using your words, remember? Words to speak the truth. Your yes be yes. Your no be no. And it's basically because the judgment you could fall under is what the world sees in you. If you say yes and you don't do it, if you say no, but you do it still, they notice. They will be very quick to judge. Very quick to judge. They love that game. But it starts to lead us right here to the issue of prayer. Prayer is knowing that we are needy. Prayer is knowing that we must go to another to meet that need. Prayer is knowing that God is able to meet that need. That's why we talk to Him. Prayer is asking Him to be willing to meet our need. And if I added a fifth one here, prayer is also trusting Him with whatever the answer might be. That's that song we just heard. Whatever the answer might be, I will trust in you. It's called dependence. Boy, do I have a bunch of goodies for you to unpack here in verse number 13. Really, I, I thought a couple weeks ago, we ought to do verse 13. And then I said, no, we ought to do verse number 16. And then go back to 13. And then I thought, no, maybe we should do 13, then 16, and then 14, then 16, then 15, then 16, and then 16 again, and then 17 and 16. And you know what I'm trying to say? If I put a circle around verse number 16, we would find the statement that we are studying in this paragraph. Sometimes you might read it, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Some of your translations have that, right? Some have what mine reads here this morning. It says in verse 16 at the end, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Or you might have something along that line. That is a fascinating verse to study, an important one to know, and we're going to come to it often, often, as we're in this paragraph, because that's what it all centers around. That's a statement. Prayer that is effective. Boy, that's better than prayer that goes nowhere. You ever feel at times, and feel, I know is a kind of floppy little word for us here, you ever feel like your prayers don't really go above the ceiling at all? You might as well talk to a wall. It doesn't seem like your, your uh, prayers are heard. Some people say, we don't know if God's even listening to us. Some people say, we don't seem to get any answers for what we need. We're in a fog. We're, we're, we're really confused. We don't know where to go. Prayer is an interesting thing that way. 
when you look at this, the effective prayer, we like that word. That's an important word. It's a beautiful participle. I've got to explain it to you sometime. Next week, probably. What is effective? It's a beautiful, beautiful word. But the effective, fervent prayer of a what? Righteous man. Oh, that is limited to elders and pastors. No, thank you. It is not. It is not, and you know it, don't you? Many times our prayers are selfish. They're designed for creature comforts. They're all about what we want and not about what he wants. Sometimes we do need to pray for one another when it comes to comfort, don't we? Somebody breaks their ankle, we pray for her. Somebody's having respiratory issues and bronchitis and who knows what else. While she's taking care of her husband, who just had two wrists had surgery. We've got a family down the street we need to be praying for. Jenny and Jeff and, and all that they're going through right now. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, and we've had that recently. We've had some serious surgeries, too. We've been praying about that. Our list, at times, seems rather long, doesn't it? That's, that's not including all the others who are facing things. Uh, the cancers, the job situations, a brother who's in very serious, he's still like that. We've been praying for Jeff for some time here too. We start going through the list and really if you look at the list you start to say, Lord, if it wasn't for you, we might as well not even say anything. Because these are impossible from a human standpoint. We can't accomplish these things. That's why we admit we're needy. And we don't have what we need. But we go to a God who does. We go to a God who does. And He does the impossible. Uh, It's just an amazing thing to learn. We do appreciate so much your prayers for us as we travel. Some of you didn't even know we were driving through the night. We didn't know that either. We were, we were deciding at the last minute, leaving Friday, after finishing up 19 of these sermons, we got in the car, we had a hotel set aside for us, about five hours away. We thought that would be ideal, we'd just stop there in northern Nebraska. We'd just stop right there, and then we'd get up the next day and finish the journey. Well, we're driving along, and we're thinking, uh-uh, <laughs> this is probably not best to stop. All the weather reports said, if you stay in Nebraska, you might as well buy a house. <laughs> That's what it looked like. It was, it, and the road said it too. They, they were just one sheet of ice. It was drizzling, this rainy, sleety stuff. And if you've ever been on I-80, the sign says 75 miles per hour. We were at 30 at times. Going down that road in the dark, on this ice, watching cars go off the road, trucks are off the road, one spinning out in front of us uh, on the other side of the road. We could see all those things happening. And really, 75 said something. It said, you were in a hurry to meet Jesus. That's what that said. That was an incredible thing to watch cars pass us at speeds like that. It's like, whoa, we weren't... We weren't we weren't going to go that fast. So we took the long route, 19, 18 to 19 hours 
All the way around, we beat the storm, but we had to drive through the night in fog, in rain, in sleet, on ice, the whole thing. But you know what? You folks had been praying for us, and we treasure that. We treasure that. The Lord certainly is with you, as he is with us, and he is in Nebraska, too. And that's an amazing thing. But we drove through that and we thanked the Lord for a safe trip. Only one, only one minor issue when the windshield wiper flipped off the car and flew up somewhere. We cured it with some medical bandages. It looks like it had amputation now. It's got this little stub on the end. But, but that was the only problem. Thank the Lord. We just praised the Lord for a safe trip. But you know, you folks are praying for us. And I will always treasure that in my heart. Thank you for that. That's why I said when I go, let's talk about prayer. This church knows how to pray. And that has been, to me, a hallmark of this fellowship that I've got to enjoy and witness for all these years is the folks who pray. And we have our prayer chain, and it goes out, and I know these people pray. And I think that's a precious thing. And in no way do I want to slow that down. I, I want to speed it up if we can. If there's a way to enhance that, if there's a way to uh, learn more, that we might be more effective in our prayers, I think we could all stand to learn more about dependence and those things. And so as we go into a passage like this, I say, you know what, Lord, I thank you for first giving us this avenue. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that we have access to this throne. We can go talk to him because he's our father. And we are his children. What a, what a blessing that is. So, we're going to be on verse 16 many, many times. That one phrase, let's call that our, our key phrase, our motto, whatever you want to label it as, verse 16. We're going to be there many times. But notice how quickly he jumped right into the depth of the issue in verse 13. If anyone among you suffers, then he must pray. Now, actually, it doesn't say if at all. Is anyone among you suffering? He starts with the assumption <laughs> they are. After all, what's the context? They're suffering. Their suffering, it started in verse number 1, that they were having trouble because of the context of what their employer was doing. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. I just think it's unfortunate times, unfortunate to read these words, then you must pray. Then he must pray. How can we be so forgetful that we have to be told to pray? Do you know that most of the time you read about prayer in Scripture is given in the command mode? I find that, number one, to be very interesting, and number two, to be very convicting. Why must we always be told to pray? We teach the kids to pray before our meals. You add little incentives to that, such as, if you don't pray, your food will kill you. That works for a little kid. 
We also add the little one said to, if you open your eye, you'll go blind. Now, they knew I was teasing. But we did do our best to teach them to pray before their meals. I was taught that as a kid, too. Pray before your meals. The hardest part was doing it in high school, in the cafeteria. There were the quick prayers, the stealth prayers, the keep one eye open and risk going blind prayers, because you don't trust the guy sitting next to you kind of prayers. There were a lot of different ways to learn how to pray. Even at Moody, of all places, you had to watch your food while you prayed. Because these roommates, you know, they were something else. So you learn to put your arms all the way around it like this. And you pray. And it looks like you're blessing the whole thing. And all the while, that was to keep somebody from reaching over there or do something to your food. But why must we be told to pray? If somebody is suffering, why does James say, he must pray? Why does he have to give a command? You would think suffering would be the thing that propels us to prayer. But you know what suffering generally propels us to do? What was number four we were told not to do? Complain. I'll give you something real simple. The opposite of prayer is complain. Think about it for a while. He must, he must keep on praying. It's a present imperative in the Greek, and that always gets my attention. It is the idea with an I-N-G on the end. It's to keep going. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. I think that's very interesting that that seems to be the way prayer is presented in so many verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, you know the passage pretty well. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. See, I knew you knew it. Pray without ceasing. By the way, that too is a present imperative. Keep on praying, and then it's qualified with the adverb, without ceasing. What kind of prayer is this? Well, The word for ceasing is interesting. It's a triple compound. I mean, that should get your attention, right? Three words stuffed together to say, boom, 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 and make it stronger. And it does. Because the first word is not. The second word is on account of. And the third word is failure. And when you put those three together, how often it really does reflect that the failure is in the delivery of the praying. praying. We stop short. We stop short. The prophet came to a king in the Old Testament once, and he says, I want you to ask from the Lord whatever you need. You're going into battle. I want you to pray to the Lord about this battle. And here he adds an arrow in his hand. He says, now strike it on the ground. The king struck it on the ground three times and stopped. The prophet looked at him and said, why'd you stop? If you had struck it more, the Lord would have done more. But you stopped short. And so he's going to deliver you in three ways. But beyond that, he would have totally annihilated that enemy. But you stopped short. I thought, ooh, I wonder how many times our prayers stop short. 
stop short. The idea of this verse, pray without ceasing, has to do with don't fail. In a don't fail mode, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. While you're at it, of course, and everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's God's will. The prayer is God's will, right? He tells us to pray. We say, well, that's what He wants us to do. Let me uh, take you to another passage you probably know well. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter 7 and verse 7. I'm very tempted to say that, well, I might as well. I'm thinking this is where we're going next in about six months. We're going into chapter 6 and 7 of Matthew. They're rich on the topic of prayer, and I think we should keep that theme going for a little while. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Who said that? You knew that because it was red, right? No, it's not that. You know this is him speaking. Does he know what prayer is all about? Oh, by the way, when you're praying, who are you talking to? He's our intercessor. He prays on our behalf. Prayer is all about what he does in ministry for us today. And so he's giving instruction on how to pray. Ask. Seek. Knock. All three... Or just like the others I've showed you already this morning. Present imperatives. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking, knocking, asking. You say, well, why? Well... The God you're speaking to is immutable. Remember that word? What's that mean? He doesn't change. You say, well, what's that got to do with prayer? You say, well, am I going to annoy him if I keep asking? Well, he, he's no different than when you asked the first time. Does he still love you? That doesn't go down after the 15th time you've asked. If you keep seeking Him, have you bothered Him? Sometimes they hesitate. They say, I don't know. I don't want to be a pest. The Lord doesn't change His view of you, His love for you, His care for you, His compassion for you, His mercy for you, His faithfulness towards you. He does not change at all. Do you know what prayer then is helping? It's not Him. It's helping you to believe that He does not change. It's an exercise of faith to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. I know He's also inscrutable. And what was that? Can't be understood. And there's days, there are days and there's moments and there's experiences and there are prayer requests just like that. 
We don't know why. We don't know why this is going on. We've asked, we've sought, we've knocked the same issue over and over again. And the Lord hasn't changed his mind about what we're going through. That too teaches us to depend on him more. To trust him more. Sometimes you just have to be standing in those sandals to understand that best. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone instead? Or if he asks for a fish, that he will give him a snake instead? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask Him? There's a lot to learn in those verses, too. But these two things I bring before your attention. If I take Matthew 7, and if I take the passages we've just seen in, in James as well, and put them all together, and the Thessalonians passage, and put it together, it's this. Prayer is an item of obedience. A command always brings us to one of two choices. Obedience or what? Disobedience. When God says pray, as He does all the way through the Scriptures, and especially when He says it in that mode, an imperative you now have to obey or be disobedient. Sometimes that might just be the one thing that keeps you asking and seeking and knocking. It's because it's an issue of obedience. We don't want to disobey our Father. We don't want to. Prayer is also something else that we need to understand. Prayer is according to our knowledge of God. Like I've said, the measure we know Him is related to the measure we trust Him. The measure we pray is related to the measure we trust Him. When He says, do that, and we don't know why, we do that, He's pleased. He's pleased, because you've done it the way He's asked you to do it. Go back to James with me, chapter 5, verse 13. Let's start putting these pieces together, because I've just given you statements here and there. And I know that. But I want to show you a few things that are very important just in this context. It says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. I already said it's unfortunate that we need to be told to pray. But our need fosters dependence. We pray because we must. We must. We have been set at a disadvantage, I would call it that. That's the mildest form I'm going to say. Uh, when you see TV personalities teaching prayer on your television screen, telling you what prayer should be, usually it has a dollar bill attached to it somehow. Or if you touch the screen, 
Or if you send in something, they'll send you something back. And that will change your prayer life. Usually it's a thing. It's an object. A little piece of that or a piece of this or, or a little vial of this, the little water they found somewhere in some sort of river out in the Middle East or something like that. They say, this will change your prayers. We've been taught that in different ways over the years, that, that uh, the value of prayer is based on, first, what are you going to give in order to get? And then they add another element to it, which is what I call robbing the believer of the value of suffering. Robbing the believer of the value of suffering? Well, isn't that the context here? Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. What is the value of suffering? This word is an interesting word. This word suffering, it has the idea of, of pathos, the Greek word for suffering, misery, pity, things like that. But it also has the word kakos on the front of it, which is bad and evil. Evil suffering. Bad suffering. And in the context, it's because they were being treated badly because they were believers. This whole story that is started in chapter number 5 with this owner who was using their income that they had earned working for him for his own pleasures. And all the while, his workers who were believers, I have that from the end of Verse number 6. You have condemned and you have put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. As James is talking, he's talking to believers. And he says, I know your boss has withheld your pay. I know he has used it on his own pleasures. I know that it hurts. And it hurts a lot. Try it sometime. They were being treated poorly because they were believers, and if they said anything about it, apparently, from the context, they were being persecuted for that, and some even put to death for that. And if we wanted the full story, we'd see it true also in the Old Testament as well, that there were times when the abuse of power also controlled the courts, and when the courts are controlled, the Christians were brought into that, and when they were held accountable, they were thrown into jail or even put to death. It was manipulated by the rich. Now that's not saying being rich is evil. The love of riches. Now that's a different story. And here this is a case of, of sheer abuse. And, and these poor people were suffering in this context in a very intense way. They were suffering what they call a bad thing. An evil thing. Because they were righteous. James says, is anyone suffering? And you can see the whole audience raise their hand almost. <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. We're living under a difficult day of persecution just because we're believers. He says, then pray. You must pray. You must depend upon the Lord. You know, persecution is an interesting thing. Specific suffering for the name of Christ. Jesus taught it too. Matthew chapter 5, the last of the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he says, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And James is just saying, yes, that's what you're experiencing. Now, I don't think every believer has experienced this. Maybe we haven't, to the degree that they have. Maybe we haven't here, maybe in other countries. They do. But the principle is the same, whether we're living here in Hillsdale, Oklahoma, or Haiti, or any other place on this continent, or any other place in this world. The principle is depend upon the Lord. His response to persecution is to be praying. Praying. Not impatient. Not with a weak heart. Not with complaining. See how I just turned that upside down? Because that's what we do. We get impatient. We start to imagine. Our mind goes everywhere, doesn't it? We start to misjudge things. We start to misjudge our God. We start to think that, well, He doesn't care. Or He's not there. Or He's just being mean to me. Or He's punishing me. You know what? There are a lot of people who pat you on the back on that one and say, so what'd you do? Because that seems to be a favorite anymore is when somebody is suffering to say, well, it must be something you've caused. And if you think that's a real foreign concept, let's talk to Job for a while. That's exactly what they said to him too. Where we can go specific, we can go general as well with this same principle. We as Christians, living a life by faith as we ought to, experience from time to time something bad. We would call it bad. Something that hurts. Something that our response is usually, I hate to use it that way, but I have to at least express what I've known in my experiences. Retaliation. We get hurt. We hurt back. I was taught uh, a big lesson on that when I was little. I have a younger brother. I have older brothers too, but a younger brother. And we were both very, very young. And we were looking at the fish once in the fish tank in the living room. And as I'm pointing to one of them, he bit me. I had my arm out. And he thought it was breakfast or lunch. I don't know what that was about. But he just grabbed a hold of that arm and bit me with all his might. Well, what do you think I wanted to do? Before I got a chance to do it, my mom was walking by. And so I showed her my arm. I thought this was going to get me in good. He bit me. She pulled out his arm and bit him. Boy, did that shock me. You know what that said? Don't you ever bite somebody. Because you're going to get bit back. 
And it may be by somebody bigger than you. Retaliation is what we want to do. Now, I tell you that story because my mom didn't bite us all the time. But I do remember that one time. Whew, boy, it got my attention. We retaliate, don't we? We retaliate. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to protest. Have you ever seen a protest before? You don't have to go very long without seeing one if you just turn on the news in about two hours. I'm sure there's one out there somewhere to follow if you want. We are, are likely to complain. But we are told to be patient. Be patient. To strengthen your heart and to stop complaining. We are told that there are examples for us to follow. They've been there before. We've been studying them in this chapter. Job is a good example of that. We are told to guard our words, verse number 12. Speak with integrity, verse number 12. We are told to take our concerns before the Lord in prayer. That's the rest of the chapter. It is a place, folks, for us to unload our hearts. And so much we need that, don't we? Peter would say it this way. Cast your cares before the Lord. Do you know what that is? That's to take them and throw them at His feet. Now, when you do that, you don't have a string to pull them back. You throw them there and they're out of your hands. They're at His feet. Our practice in prayer is like this. Lord, here's my concern. I set it there at Your feet. I pray about this, Lord. I appreciate you're going to do this about it and all these things. And I'm going to leave it with you. And then we slide it back with one finger, put it back in our pocket until the next prayer. And then we do it again. And then we slide it back and we put it there. He says, cast them and leave them. Now, you could go on talking about them because he's got them there at his feet. <laughs> he knows what they are. Even before you ask. But they're there. Right there. And they're not on your heart. You're not carrying that burden. He says, I care for you. Right? I care for you. That means you know who He is. You trust Him in that. And so, our first thing is that we need to unload our hearts. Yes, prayer is a beautiful avenue for that. He is the one who can do something about it, too. I think sometimes we complain to a lot of people who can do nothing about it. Why do we do it? Because we love misery. And we think everybody should be miserable if we're miserable. It sounds biblical, doesn't it? No? No, it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, right? That means you're to look for them, not go to them and make them cry. Share your misery with them. Go and say, I'm, I'm miserable. I want you to be miserable. Here it says that we're loading it on somebody who can't do anything about it. While prayer is taking it to the one who can do something about it. But here's something also true of prayer. It gives us a better focus. It gives us a better focus. Because we spend more time in prayer thinking of Him than we should be thinking of the, what the issue is. 
That's what it comes down to anyway. Prayer is setting your hearts on things above, where Christ is. Prayer is going before Him and trusting Him. Why do you trust Him? What is He able to do? What has He done in the past? Can you see how many things can start prompting your mind about Him in prayer? We talk to Him. We focus on Him. And so many times the answer is given just in trusting Him that way. It builds our faith. It builds our trust. It builds our dependence. You say, but that's hard to do. Do you know Jesus did it too? Peter will say this, and I really want you to see it because it's important. First Peter 2. You're not far from that in James. First Peter 2, verse 20. Look through all the way down to verse 23. 20 through 23. What credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he wasn't impatient. He didn't respond with a weak heart. He did not complain. He did not speak yes and mean no, or speak no and mean yes. There was integrity in his words, There was purity in his attitude and his action. In all ways, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And even all that says, and while being reviled, do you think that's a harsh word? That's a tough one. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But, what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, when the, when the issue was thrown at him, that hurt him, he took it right to his father. And when this came toward him in a revile, reviling way, he took it right to his father. And when they pounded nails through his hands, he took that to his father. And even on a cross, as they were stand there slandering his name he says father forgive them he took it to his father Jesus our example for us to follow in his steps do you think he meant it yes sometimes taking steps are an interesting thing aren't they it's good to have somebody's steps to walk in to know how do I do this how do I do this? Many, many years ago, when my oldest son, Philip, was very young, about four or five years old, living in Birmingham, rare to get a snow in Birmingham, but we got a blizzard. Snow was a foot and a half deep. That was amazing, amazing to see it there. And I had to go around the side of the house for something, and so I'm walking out in the snow, big old steps walking there, and I noticed my son was trying to follow me. And he was stepping in my footprints. And so I started making them wider apart just to see if he could do it. 
I know, that's a little malicious. Our Lord does not do it that way. You know what's interesting about all this? He says, here's my example. I want you to follow in my example. When it comes to trusting the Father, I trusted the Father. And I set that example for you. And here's the beautiful thing. And I'm going to be with you while you do this. He's not a spectator. He's not the audience just watching to see if you can handle it, if you could stretch far enough to get into his footsteps. He says, I will walk with you. Isn't that his promise? Lo, I am with you. How often? Always. Do you know the beauty of prayer? is to talk to the one who's with you in the midst of what you're experiencing. He knows what you're going through. He knows your heart. He knows the pain. He knows the results. He knows everything about the situation. And we treat suffering as if he doesn't know anything. And all the while, he knows everything. You see, prayer is just demonstrating that you trust him. I'm not sure that clock is right. Is that right? Somebody's messed with it. Wow. Okay. You know what? I have two good pages yet to go. You're going to have to wait till next week. Practice what you've got so far, huh? Uh, prayer. It shows how much you trust Him. It shows how much you trust Him. Heavenly Father, we've got a lot to learn here. And though we might stop a little soon from at least my note content, we can certainly stop right here and say, I need to learn this part first. The whole issue of dependence is right here in front of us. Do we trust you? Do we trust you? Help us, Lord. We've got a lot to learn. But thank you for where you've brought us so far. We appreciate your constant love, your care, your compassion. All these things are beautiful. Thank you for doing that for us, for giving us such a command that drives us again before your throne. We praise you for that. Thank you for what you're going to do to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.